He must increase, but I must decrease. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word now. Heavenly Father, we pray for illumination from the Holy Spirit. We pray that our hearts would be humble, that our minds would be open, that our wills, Father, would be engaged by your grace to not just believe your word, but to obey it and apply it to the glory of Christ and for the good of our souls. We pray, Lord, that you would do now among us what only you can do. We pray for the supernatural work of hearing the word of God, believing it, obeying it, and living our lives upon it. We cannot do that on our own. It is an unnatural response for us. It's a supernatural work of your grace. And so we pray, we plead now for the Holy Spirit's help. Father, we know that you hear us because we come to you in the name of Christ, our Savior, our Lord, the head of the church, the risen one, the righteous one, the Lamb of God. We come to you in his name. Amen. Imagine, if you would, that a few miles down the road from us, a group of faithful Christians determined to plant a God-honoring Bible-preaching church. And imagine that over time, this new church grew in remarkable ways. Sinners were saved, baptized, and added to the church. Missionaries were trained, commissioned, and sent to the nations. Facilities and finances grew as, as a tangible evidence of God's blessing. In short, imagine that this new church was remarkably fruitful. Now, during that same period of time, imagine that your church stayed pretty much the same. No horrendous decline, but not much growth either. Just the same steady faithfulness that marked your church for all those years before the new church showed up on the block and started to grow. You got the image in your mind? How would you respond? Well, if we're honest, and I hope that we're always honest, if we're honest, it would probably be pretty difficult, wouldn't it? Our natural inclination would be to compare the two ministries and then to conclude that there was something deficient in ours. Even worse, a sense of rivalry could rise in our hearts, a mindset of competition, of protecting our territory. If we don't reach those people first, then the other church is going to reach them and we're going to be left out. We've got to protect our turf. If we're honest, it would be easy to give in to that kind of thinking. But consider what happens when a competition mindset takes over in a church. Consider how deeply and how tragically ministry is deformed by rivalry. Instead of viewing people as made in God's image, we see them as potential leads in a marketplace. Instead of focusing on faithfulness to the Bible, we strategize how to increase our footprint. Rather than rejoicing in the glory of God revealed in the salvation of sinners, we begin to sulk over our little place in God's plan. 
You see the tragedy at work in that situation? Consumed by rivalry and competition, we entirely lose sight of what God has given us to do. Friends, my point in this imagined scenario is to illustrate that jealousy is among the most destructive enemies confronting the church. Jealousy. Envy ruins ministry. Whether it be your personal ministry as a Christian or our corporate ministry as a church. Anytime we compare ourselves to others, wishing our work was more like someone else's, anytime comparison takes over, you can rest assured that the one thing going out the door is faithfulness. Jealousy, envy, competition destroys faithfulness, both for Christians and for churches. What then is the solution to this kind of situation? Or to ask it a different way, what can protect a church from going the way of envy and jealousy? Well, in God's kindness, our text this morning provides the answer. You may have picked this up in our reading, but that imagined scenario is not unlike the reality facing John the Baptist in this chapter, in John chapter 3. For some time, people have been flocking to John the Baptist in order to hear his preaching and to receive his baptism of repentance, but now the momentum is shifting, you might say. Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in the Judean countryside and folks are leaving John's ministry to go follow Jesus. And for the followers of John the Baptist, this is a problem. Look at verse 26. Look at their question. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bear witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. That's not a happy question. John's ministry is decreasing, his influence is waning, and his disciples are alarmed. They want to know what John will do. How will John respond to his dwindling numbers? You see, it's the same mindset from our imagined scenario at the beginning. The disciples of John the Baptist are concerned because they're consumed with competition. Thankfully, however, John the Baptist is not. John the Baptist has no use for competition and rivalry. Instead, John's response makes clear that he is perfectly content for what is happening. He's perfectly content for Jesus to increase, even if that means his ministry decreases. He's perfectly content. And friends, that's the bridge that connects this passage To us, for all of his uniqueness in redemptive history, John the Baptist sets the example for what it means to pursue a Christ-exalting ministry. That's the bridge from this text to us. John the Baptist shows us, both in his actions and in his attitude, what it looks like to do ministry for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. Of course, we still need to understand how John the Baptist did this, how he avoided rivalry and focused on exalting Jesus. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning as we study this text. To understand and apply God's word today, we need to think about the example of John the Baptist 
in order to see what it looks like to pursue a Christ-exalting ministry. What does that kind of ministry require? And what, kind, and what does that kind of ministry produce? That's what we're going to think about. There's going to be two points to the sermon. The first has to do with humility. That's what a Christ-exalting ministry requires. And the second has to do with joy. That's what a Christ-exalting ministry produces. My hope, friends, is that by the end of this sermon, each of us will be more deeply committed to doing what ministry is about in the first place, which is exalting Jesus in whatever way God has ordained for us to do, whether it means increase or decrease. That's my aim. So, two marks from John 3 of a Christ-exalting ministry. Mark number 1 comes in verses 22 to 28. Christ-exalting ministry requires the humble embrace of God's sovereignty. The humble embrace of God's sovereignty. That's what this kind of ministry requires. We've already noted the setting for the passage, which is described in verse 22 and following. After the exchange with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples head out to the Judean countryside where they engage in a ministry of baptism. Jesus himself is not baptizing. If you look down at verse 2 of chapter 4, the Apostle John provides that clarification. Jesus is not baptizing. His disciples are. So you can kind of sketch out what the scene looks like. Jesus is preaching. People are responding. And his disciples are baptizing them in response. What kind of baptism was this? We don't know. Since the Apostle John doesn't tell us, the point of this passage is not about baptism per se, but the connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. That connection comes into focus in verses 23 and 24, where we learn that the two ministries are operating simultaneously. John's ministry is ongoing, and Jesus' ministry is growing. And that establishes the whole context for the rest of the passage. Two ministries led by two men doing a similar thing, baptizing, separated by only a handful of miles. You can put the pieces together. The scene is ripe for comparison between the two. And that's precisely what happens. Beginning in verse 25. Look there again with me. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Just like Jesus, John the Baptist's ministry creates some questions within Israel. An argument arises over purification. Within the Judaism of Jesus' day, there were a number of practices connected with ceremonial purification. And some groups even had daily rituals that you had to do in order to purify yourself before God. So perhaps in verse 25, what's happening is that this unnamed Jewish man is debating with John's disciples over how John's baptism connects with the Judaism of the present day. Perhaps that's what's going on. They want to know, what does John's ministry have to do with all of these other things? Now, what's interesting at this point is that this debate happens at all. <laughs> Remember, John the Baptist is the forerunner to the Messiah, he prepared people to see that something new and greater was coming. That was John's role, to point people ahead, to get people to look forward to Jesus. 
But notice what's happening in verse 25. They're not looking ahead, they're looking back. How does John's baptism connect with these old practices? They're not looking ahead, they're looking back. And in doing so, everyone is missing the point. God is doing a new work in and through Jesus, and you can't make the new fit into the old. And and friends, this is going to be a hallmark of John's gospel going forward from this point. The old, represented in the Pharisees and Jewish religious leaders, the old will struggle to understand the new, represented in Jesus and the preaching of the gospel. So in arguing about purification, verse 25, these people are really missing the point. And sadly, their misunderstanding gets worse in verse 26. The followers of John the Baptist can't settle their argument. But as they come to their teacher, the the argument expands, the discussion expands to include Jesus. What about him? They ask John the Baptist. What about that guy? Everyone's going over there. Now, as we noted earlier, The question in verse 26 has an edge to it. It's not a friendly question. There's a note of competition when John's followers point out that everyone is now going to Jesus. They recognize that John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus. But still, what about the status of John's ministry? Is is his baptism not legitimate? Is his influence waning? Again, you can hear the concern. What does this mean for John the Baptist? And so, John the Baptist now stands at a crossroads. How will he answer his followers? Will he attempt to keep them in the fold? Or will he point them in a different direction? Well, thankfully, we already know that John the Baptist does not give in to competition. We already know that. But his answer, friends, is a masterpiece of sound doctrine humbly applied. It's a masterpiece. Notice what he says, verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. At first, you might not see the connection between the question in verse 26 and the answer in verse 27. John's followers ask about Jesus' growing ministry, and John the Baptist says something enigmatic about heaven. But that reference to heaven is actually the key, friends. Heaven is used here as a stand-in for God. It's an expression of reverence, you might say. That which comes from heaven comes from God. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him by God. That's what John says. So verse 27 is a a declaration of God's sovereignty over all things. John the Baptist affirms that everything in life comes through God's sovereign will. Whatever gifts a person has, whatever circumstances you encounter, whatever ministry you receive, all of it is ordained by God according to His will. God determines the where and the when and the what of life. And that means John the Baptist has no reason to look on Jesus' ministry with anything resembling competition. The only response for John the Baptist is humility. 
John's ministry unfolds according to God's will, and Jesus' ministry unfolds according to God's will. God determines the course of both men. God is sovereign over the lives of both John and Jesus. And in his sovereignty, God has determined for John the Baptist to be the forerunner and for Jesus to be the greater one to come. God has determined that John would baptize with water for repentance and that Jesus would baptize with something greater, the Holy Spirit. God has determined that John would bring the old covenant era to an end while Jesus would inaugurate the new covenant era through his death and resurrection. In each of those connections, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist and that was God's sovereign will for both of them. And therefore, the only thing for John the Baptist to say is everything I have, including my ministry, is given to me by God. He's sovereign, I'm not, and I'll submit to him. I'll trust him. Friends, what I'm I'm driving at is that John the Baptist understands that competition and rivalry at the core are rebellion against God. Competition, rivalry, envy, at the core, those things are rebellion against God. When we covet the circumstances of other people, we express our belief that we would do God's job better than Him. If I look at the ministry of another pastor and think, why isn't my church growing like His? then I am committing the same sin that Satan displayed in his fall, the desire to be like God, even to the point of thinking that I would do God's job better than he would. And the same is true for individual Christians in the church. If you look at the gifting of a fellow believer and think, I should have more opportunities than him, or why don't I have more gifts than her, then in that moment, friends, your heart is rebelling against the sovereign will of God. The only way, the only way to live with a Christ-exalting focus is to humbly embrace the sovereignty of God in all of life's circumstances, whatever course God has given you to run. And I want to stress the connection here between humility and God's sovereignty. I want want to press on this. This was the extremely fruitful piece of sermon prep for me this week. It's why we're stopping at verse 30 and not going all the way to verse 36. This was the really fruitful piece for me. And I hope it's fruitful for you. It's clear, follow me with this for a minute. It's clear that John the Baptist is humble. That's not hard to see. He doesn't resort to rivalry. His attitude is simply to be a servant. It's clear that he's humble, right? How is is he humble? That's That's the deeper question. How is John the Baptist able to be so humble? Remember, John the Baptist is not a superhero. He's a human being, like you and me. He is subjected to the same fallen nature as you and me. And that means that humility was not the natural or automatic response for John the Baptist. So how did it come about? How is John the Baptist able to be so humble in this text? 
The answer, friends, is through his application of sound doctrine. Through his embrace of God's sovereign will. It's the application of sound doctrine that produces godly living. Think about it. Because John the Baptist believes verse 27, because he believes verse 27, he is able to submit to whatever role God ordains for him to fulfill. No one can receive even a single thing unless it is given to him by God. And that means everything that I do have is God's will and I receive it. You see what he does? Humility doesn't just spring out of thin air in John's heart. He's applying truth. And as the truth takes root in his soul, humility grows. Because John believes he cannot receive even one thing apart from God, he is able to do anything that God calls him to do, even decrease in comparison to Jesus. Do you see the connection here? Humility is hard. It's not natural. Do you know what is natural? Competition, rivalry, jealousy. So how do we do what's not natural and live with a humble attitude through, through the application of truth by learning to see each day, each circumstance, each calling as the expression of God's will for our lives? Church, what I, part of what I hope we learn this morning is that the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and that's just a fancy way of saying that God rules everything. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And in the original, whatever means whatever. Everything. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, when you read the Bible, is intensely practical in its application. The doctrine of God's rule over our lives is intensely practical for daily living. I know people tend to think of God's sovereignty as a reason to debate. Christians love to argue. You could just stop the sentence there. (laughs) Christians love to argue over how divine sovereignty works. And I get the reason for those debates. There's a lot to unpack when we say that God rules over all things. But friends, when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible what you find is that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is amazingly practical, even pastoral. It's meant to help Christians live holy, humble, and hopeful lives. It's not a reason for debate. It's a reason for application so that we can live in a way that pleases God. So I hope this is an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, before we debate all the finer points of doctrine, let's make sure that we apply them. Let's make sure we put them to work. No one can receive even a single thing unless it is given to him by God. And therefore, we can embrace with humility whatever God has given us to do. Whatever God has given us to do. That's the first mark of a Christ-exalting ministry. It's this humble embrace of God's will for our lives. The second mark of a Christ-exalting ministry helps sustain the first. We've just thought about what this kind of ministry requires. Now let's see what this kind of ministry produces. Mark number two. 
from verses 29 and 30. Christ-exalting ministry produces joyful contentment with Christ's glory. Joyful contentment with Christ's glory. That's Mark number 2. Again, this kind of humility displayed by John the Baptist is not easy. It's costly to submit yourself to the will of God. But in verse 29, John the Baptist testifies that this kind of humility also produces a deep sense of joy. Notice the analogy that John the Baptist uses. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Before we consider what that means for John the Baptist, we need to recognize what verse 29 means about Jesus. This is a profound declaration of Jesus' identity. John the Baptist did not come up with the imagery of the bride and the bridegroom on his own. Rather, he's drawing on the Old Testament here. John is applying an Old Testament image, connecting the Old Testament with the person of Jesus. In the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, God often depicted himself as the bridegroom, and Israel was his bride. Isaiah 62, verse 5, is a good example. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God shall rejoice over you. So the image denotes how God and his people exist in a covenant relationship. He is the bridegroom, and his his people are the bride. But here in John chapter 3, notice how John the Baptist is applying the image. He's not making a point about Israel. He's making a point about Jesus. In John's description, Jesus is the bridegroom. Friends, that's a profound statement. That if, if it's not true, then John is committing blasphemy. This is a profound statement. In John's description, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is Israel's covenant Lord and King. Jesus stands in the place of God himself. For Jesus is God in the flesh. It's through Jesus that God is drawing his people together. And it's through Jesus that God's faithfulness is now displayed. And of course, as we keep reading through the New Testament, if we were to do that this morning, we would see how this image even expands more. As the church is the bride of Christ. And the entire, the entire institution of marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church in the, in the gospel. All of that, friends, all of that profound biblical imagery is present here in John 3, albeit in seed form. In, in John the Baptist's description, Jesus is the bridegroom, the one who faithfully fulfills the promises of God. So if you zoom back in on John the Baptist, this is why he can willingly submit himself to God's plan. This is why John the Baptist is not concerned if his ministry goes away. Because Jesus is the bridegroom. The bride belongs to Jesus, not John. And therefore the glory belongs to Jesus as well. In a way, this is John the Baptist's final lesson to his followers. This is his, this is his final lesson. Why are they so caught up in, in competition? Because they fail to see who Jesus is. He's not just another guy in the wilderness running a competing ministry. 
He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the bridegroom. And therefore, the spotlight ought to be on Jesus, not John. At the same time, the glory of Jesus has a practical impact on John the Baptist. It affects his life in a good way. Notice the last phrase in verse 29, which is another remarkable combination of doctrine and godliness. The end of verse 29, Therefore, John the Baptist says, This joy of mine is now complete. On a theological level, John the Baptist is saying that his ministry is finished. His role is fulfilled. In the scope of redemptive history, he brings the old covenant era to an end while Jesus inaugurates the new covenant era through his death and resurrection. John's disciples then shouldn't worry about their teachers decreasing numbers. This is exactly how things are supposed to go. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the very next verse, verse 30 is the last time that John the Baptist speaks in this book. It's the narrative way of making this same theological point. The forerunner has run his course. He's done. The bridegroom has come. So doctrinally and theologically, John the Baptist, verse 29, affirms that his ministry is finished. He's run his course. But on a practical level, in terms of personal godliness... John the Baptist is saying that nothing gives him greater joy than seeing Jesus ascend in the spotlight. Nothing gives him greater joy. Again, note the image that John uses there in verse 29. What is John the Baptist like? He's like the best man at a wedding. In John the Baptist's day, the the best man had significant responsibilities at the wedding. It was his job to make sure everything went off without a hitch. And so when the moment finally came for the groom to receive his bride, the best man didn't grumble that no one was paying attention to him. He rejoiced because he had had done his job. He had fulfilled his role. In a similar way, John the Baptist rejoices in the fulfillment of his role. Like a faithful best man at the wedding John the Baptist has prepared the way for the bridegroom, and the end result, the end result is joy. Joy. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. Please don't overlook John's choice of words in verse 29. What John receives is joy. It's more than simply a pat on the back. It's more than simply a job well done. Joy is this deep-seated delight that comes from knowing your life is part of something bigger, something enduring. When John the Baptist sees his ministry decreasing and Jesus' increasing, his response is not envy or rivalry or competition. It's joy, deep-seated, soul-satisfying joy. And so you come to the final thing that John says, Verse 30, look at this expression of joyful contentment that concludes John's ministry. Verse 30, I take it, is the last time John the Baptist speaks in the book. And his parting words are worthy of commendation. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
the idea here is of one light fading because another light, a greater light, is coming into focus. Think of the relationship between the stars in the night sky and, and the sun. In the night sky, the, the stars shine and, and twinkle in a way that, frankly, is glorious. And stars are also necessary on some level to help people navigate the way forward in the dark so that they can't see. But what happens when the sun rises in the morning? The light of the stars fades. Is that because the stars are insignificant or pointless? No, it's because their role is finished. With the greater light of the sun, everything is illuminated. We can see the way ahead. And the stars decrease precisely because the sun increases. And so it is with John the Baptist, verse 30 is saying. With his role finished, the light of his ministry necessarily decreases. Not because he's unimportant, but precisely because he's done his job in helping them see someone else is greater. He must decrease because Christ has come to increase. I love that this is John the Baptist's final testimony to us. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so as we think about some application, I hope we see the significant contribution John the Baptist makes to our lives, our everyday lives as Christians. Of course, John the Baptist is unique in many ways. None of us will ever have a ministry like John the Baptist. But still, his example is very instructive. This is where the two points of the sermon come together, I guess you could say. John's example teaches us that submitting to God's sovereign will is the pathway to joy. Submitting to God's sovereign will is the pathway to joy. Therefore, John says, this ministry of mine is complete. This joy of mine is complete. What joy? The joy of submitting to God in exalting Christ. And friends, the same can hold true, the same can hold true for us as believers today. Submitting to God's will is the pathway to joy. We can press that deeper, actually. Using your life to magnify Jesus completes the believer's experience of joy. That's how we ought to apply verse 29 on a personal level. To live for the glory of Christ produces in the Christian's heart a joyful contentment in God, whatever he's given us to do. To know that your life is devoted to the one thing that God is supremely committed to accomplishing, the glory of His Son. To know that your life is submitted to that one grand, divine, universe-defining purpose. Friends, there's no greater joy than that. To know that you're living for the glory of Christ. Now, I want to be realistic at this point. This is not an easy way to live. And it does not guarantee that our lives will be free from hardship. If you determine to live for the glory of God in Christ, 
submitting yourself to God's will, that's not an easy way to live. And it does not guarantee that your life will be free from hardship. Again, think about the example of John the Baptist. What happened to John the Baptist at the end of his life? Verse 24 hints at it. He goes to prison. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, among those born among women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. And he went to jail. And then they cut his head off. So devoting yourself to the glory of God in Christ is not easy. So I'm not trying to, I don't mean to sound trite with this application. I am not saying that if we all just smile and say that everything's about Jesus, everything's going to be hunky-dory. That is emphatically not what I'm saying. Rather, my point is that this kind of humble submission to God produces a joy that endures through difficulty. The joy of glorifying Christ is a durable joy, in other words. It doesn't rise and fall with the moods of the moment. The joy of exalting Christ endures. The world can't destroy it, even if they put you in prison, even if they take your head. The world can't destroy it. This kind of joy sticks in the heart and soul, even when following God means we face hardship. I want to live this way. But I'll confess to you that I, I, am, I am not there. Far too often, far too often, I, I buck against God's sovereign will. And I think that I could do his job better than he can. And far too often, I, I prefer the joy that comes from honoring self <laughs> rather than the joy that comes from honoring Christ. So I want to live this way, but, but I'm not there. Maybe you can relate to that. If so, what do we do? If we're convinced from John 3 that this is how we ought to live, and if we're also convinced from our own lives that we're not very good at living this way... <laughs> What do we do? The answer, friends, is we apply the gospel. We apply the gospel. We confess where we fall short. We embrace God's forgiveness in Christ. And then we strive by faith to put these truths from John 3 before our hearts and minds each day. We meditate on these truths, praying for God's spirit to change us. We apply the gospel to ourselves. That doesn't sound life-shattering, but remember that much of the Christian life is lived in the ordinary. We have very few extraordinary days as a Christian. We have mostly ordinary days. Which means our application of the gospel has to happen in the ordinary, everyday life. So every ordinary day, we apply the truth of the gospel. We remember that God is sovereign over our days, even the ordinary days. And then we believe that exalting Jesus is the pathway to lasting, durable joy. We apply the gospel. Let's go back to those two churches that we imagined at the outset. One outwardly fruitful and the other just steady. Which church is carrying out God's will? Thankfully, friends, it's not our responsibility to answer that question. Our responsibility is to remember that God determines the course of ministry 
not us. He determines both seasons of fruitfulness and seasons of steadiness. And that means every season, no matter the appearance, is a place for Christ to be glorified. Whatever the circumstance, humility before God can lead to joyful contentment in Christ. That's the outworking of John the Baptist's last example to us. It's the ability to say by faith, he must increase, I must decrease, and to say it not begrudgingly, not with reservation, but with joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of saints gone by, even those like John the Baptist, who, with all of his uniqueness in the scope of redemptive history, teaches us what it looks like to exalt Jesus with our lives, with our ministries. We pray, Father, that we would follow that example. We pray that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, remembering that no one can receive even a single thing unless it is given to him by God. And that in humbling ourselves, Father, we would find joy. Not fleeting joy, but durable, lasting joy that produces in our hearts contentment with whatever it is that you have given us to do. Father, help us to live this way. And when we fall short, Father, help us to apply the gospel, believing that Christ's blood is sufficient to forgive even us. We pray this in his name. Amen.